Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. As we return, uh, we began a couple weeks ago to discuss God's design for marriage and particularly God's design for wives in marriage from Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. As we started last time, we talked about what a difficult passage this is for so many. Difficult not necessarily in its interpretation, the meaning that is, is quite clear, but difficult in the acceptance of it. Difficult in the, implica- the uh, uh, applying of it. And it shouldn't surprise us that there is such difficulty, difficulty not just for unbelievers, but sometimes even for believers, because Paul presents this passage clearly as the byproduct. He presents it as the characteristic mark of those who are filled by the Spirit. And so we take little expectation that those who are, uh, are, are not full of the Spirit, those who have the Spirit absent from their life, would struggle indeed with such a concept of exactly what Paul calls for here, which is submission of wives to their husband. Few concepts in Scripture are more repulsive to the world. Few concepts are more struggled with by critics of the Bible, by critics of, of Christianity in contemporary time. Few things are struggled with sometimes even by those in the church as this very design by God. But Paul clearly presents it to us as the byproduct of the Spirit-filled life. It's a, it's a natural repulsion that people may have to it, but in, in contrast to that, it is the natural thing, the natural byproduct of what takes place in your life when the Spirit is filling you. That is one of several elements that we pointed out from Paul's statements here, his command here. Several qualifiers, you remember we started to enumerate them last time. The first one being that submission is not unique to wives. Submission is not unique to wives. Simply to say that this is one of several applications that Paul's making of a larger principle out of verse 21. When he says that believers who are filled by the Spirit will be, among other things, submissive to whatever authorities the Lord has established over them. They will be, he says, naturally singers of songs to God. They will be naturally thankful in all circumstances. And they will be, thirdly, submissive to whatever authorities the Lord has established them. And then Paul begins to explain exactly what he means by that as he moves through the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. This isn't limited, in other words, just to women. Every person filled by the Spirit To every authority the Lord has established over their lives, whether it's wives to husbands, whether it's children to parents, whether it's employers to employees, whether it's citizens to the government, whether it's congregations to their leaders, you could just add any number of statements in here. Spirit-filled people, though, recognize that authority comes from God, that He's established it. He reigns over it. And they submit themselves to it. We also pointed out from Paul's statement, submission isn't optional. For women. It's not optional. This is a command. Not just here, but more explicitly in Colossians 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, Titus 2. Whereas it might be in a, a, a verbally, it might be a participial form here, it is very clearly an imperative in all those passages, and it is likewise here. 
women are commanded by God to place themselves under their husbands. That is the implication of the verb, hupotasso, taking the word under and the word to place or to put and, and, and giving it in a reflexive form, meaning this is something women do to themselves. They are to place themselves willingly, gladly, in obedience to Christ under their husbands. It's not a matter of personality. It's not a matter of temperament. It's not a matter of your, your personal situation. It's a matter of choice and will and obedience to the Lord. For every wife. Thirdly, thirdly, we pointed out that submission is not universal. It's not universal for wives. That is simply to say that she's not to submit in the same way to every man. This isn't Paul's demand that every woman submit to every man. His very clear emphasis is that submission is to your own husband. That's what he says explicitly in verse 22. This is a mandate that you submit to the one that God has given you as a husband. You're not to fall, in other words, into the temptation to begin to look on other men with greater esteem, greater honor, giving greater respect to them than you do to your own husband. That's the point. Recognition that God has placed you uniquely in a relationship to that man who is your husband. And that he's the one who is therefore to receive primarily this honor, respect, and this submission that the Lord's called you to. It's not to say, of course, that you're disrespectful to other men. And it's certainly not to say that you refuse, therefore, to submit to other authorities that the Lord has established in both you and your husband's life. There are times indeed when you might need to stand with those authorities against your husband if he engages, for example, in some criminal activity, some flagrant sin. None of this teaching in Ephesians in any way mandates that you somehow must obey your husband alone, even to the point of leading you into sin. Any more than the demand that your husband submit to his employer would mean that he needs to follow his employer into criminal activity, into sinful activity, disobedience to the Lord. There are times, in fact, when your husband may demand some action or even forbid some action that is a violation of God's Word, and in that case, this, this command to submit to your own husband in no way cancels out your obligation to submit, first of all, to God and to other proper authorities in your life. Classic example of this principle, of course, is Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin, the governing authority in Israel, who demand that they no longer preach the gospel, and they respond to them saying, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's basically the same principle that should govern a woman who finds herself in a position when her husband is demanding some sinful behavior, it's better to obey God than man, even if that man is your husband. The principle of submission doesn't eliminate, in other words, your obligation to God or to any other institution that he's established. So if your husband is asking you to sin or asking you to break the law, you can't follow him down that path. God never intended you to 
submit to those kinds of demands. As a matter of fact, in recognition of God's sovereignty in establishing every authority and the blessing of those authorities, you recognize that in those cases, God has established governmental authorities, sometimes church authorities, for your protection, even. You may very well violate your husband's authority sometimes and submit to these other institutions, recognizing God's role in them over even your husband's life. Now, someone's going to come along and say, well, what about 1 Peter 3? 1 Peter 3, I mean, it says that wives should obey their husbands, even those who are disobedient in the word. It does indeed speak about husbands who are disobedient in the word, but it never says the wife should be. The implication is that disobedience characterizes the lives of some husbands. They are sometimes not respectable. They sometimes are are an ungodly influence. They sometimes are, are even violently opposed to the Word of God. But none of that in any way implies that the woman should mimic or follow in that pattern. You shouldn't follow your husband into whatever kind of sinful, deceitful schemes that he may hatch. You shouldn't do like Sapphira did, you remember, in Acts chapter 5, when her husband came up with a scheme in order to somehow uh, exalt himself before the church. He went out and sold a piece of property and gave some to the church, but told them that he gave everything to the church so that he could receive the praise and, and all the accolades of doing that. He, of course, was lying in the whole thing and led his wife down the same pattern. When he did show up at the congregation and was confronted about his sin, he lied and the Spirit of God struck him down dead. And a few hours later, his wife came in, confronted with the same thing, and she wasn't able to hide in any way under her husband's leadership. She wasn't able to say, well, look, he's the one that was leading me. I was just submitting to him. She wasn't able to say, you know what? He has culpability for this because I was, you know, taking my role. She, in fact, herself is found guilty and held accountable for her own disobedience before the Lord. Following her husband's fate, she too struck down dead by the Holy Spirit. God never intended for his, his design in marriage to cause you to follow your husband into sin. You're never to become a lawbreaker with him. You're never to engage in him in his deceitful schemes or engage in him in savoring his pornography or engaging in his drunkenness or following him down his pathway of rebellion Whatever it might be, you may at times have to take a stand with Christ, even against your husband. But the point of First Peter chapter 3 is that when you do that, you do it with a gentle and quiet spirit. You do it still with an attitude and with a behavior that communicates your desire to not resist His will, but you're longing to come up under Him in a pursuit of holiness, righteousness, and goodness. That's the point of 1 Peter. Not that because He's disobedient, you likewise become disobedient. There's a time and a place for recognition, therefore, of other authorities that God's established in you and your husband's life. That's, of course, the beautiful, demonstra beautifully demonstrated in the life of Abigail. 
You remember Abigail? She was married to a fool. That's his name, actually. Nabal means fool. First, uh, first Samuel chapter 25. And you remember the story. Nabal is a wealthy guy. He's gone up to Mount Carmel to shear his sheep. He's, he's sort of uh, celebrating as he does that. He has feasts uh, around this event. And he's in the same neighborhood as David. Now David and his uh, mighty men are traveling throughout the, uh, the wilderness, if you will, traveling throughout the, uh, the distant lands outside of Jerusalem because he's been anointed king and yet Saul is after him out of jealousy. Increasingly, day by day, more and more people in Israel are coming to recognize David's rightful place as king. Those who are even in that area are coming to honor him and support him. And in the midst of all this, David comes to make a request of Nabal. And he asks Nabal, he sends some messengers to Nabal, he says, Look, my men are in your area, and we were wondering, knowing you have a feast, if you could simply give us the leftovers from your feast. Something to give my men some nourishment. When his men come to deliver this message to Nabal, they are in fact chided. They're mocked and David's authority is mocked. And he utterly refuses to give them a scrap of food. Now this is in spite of the fact that David has even provided protection to Nabal's shepherds. While he's out in the wilderness, he's watched over Nabal's flock, he's watched over their shepherds, lest anything harmful could possibly come to them. And so he's already shown his friendliness, his kindness to Nabal. But whenever he receives this message, he takes it then that Nabal doesn't have any interest in being a friend, but rather he has an interest in being an enemy. David then mounts on his horse and prepares 400 soldiers and heads out to Nabal's camp. But Abigail, Nabal's wife, learns of the whole incident and contrary to her husband's wishes, and even without her husband's knowledge, she prepares a lavish offering of food. And she went, goes out to intercept David as he rides toward Nabal's camp. She meets David, she bows before him, affirming the Lord's calling on him as king and makes appeals on behalf of her husband. This is the kind of woman that even there in 1 Samuel 25 and everywhere in Scripture is praised for both her discernment and her discretion. She recognizes the place of her husband, but she also recognizes the place of David's authority as king over her land. And in her wisdom, she knew when her husband had stepped outside of those authorities that were over him. So this command that you find to submit to your own husband by no mean rule, means rules out the notion that at some point you might actually need to work directly with the authorities that the Lord has established over him to help fulfill their purposes in his life. Sometimes that involves making appeals to them as God's partners with you in accomplishing His purpose in your husband's life. Paul's statement here about submitting to your own husband doesn't rule out any of that. It's simply a call for you to recognize the fact that God has established every authority in the universe, even the one in your marriage. 
And that means God has placed you in a unique relationship to one man, your husband, apart from every other relationship. And he's the one who is to receive that unique honor, that unique respect, that unique submission that God intends for every marriage. That leads us to a fourth point, a fourth qualifier in Paul's command here for submission. Submission is spiritual. For wives. Submission is spiritual for wives. We sort of move out of the negatives. What it's not. It's not unique to women. It's not optional for women. It's not universal. We move out of what it's not to now what it is. And the first thing we can say about the positive side is it is spiritual. It is a spiritual act. The act or the behavior you offer to God more than you offer to your husband, in other words. That's Paul's point in verse 22 when he says this submission should be as to the Lord. He's not saying your husband should take the place of the Lord or that you must now give him equal authority with the Lord. He doesn't have that kind of absolute authority over you. This is just the same principle that you find in Colossians 3, the parallel passage when it says wives are to submit to their own husbands as is fitting. In the Lord. Your husband doesn't replace Christ as a woman's supreme authority. Somebody gave my wife a book uh, at our wedding. I can't remember for the wedding day or before that. A little book that basically teaches this principle that you somehow, this phrase means that your husband, uh, that he's, he, he receives all the obedience that you would give to Christ. And he now takes the place of the Lord. I think it's called Me Obey Him. And the whole idea as you move through that book is that, that, that God has now shifted this allegiance that was all to Christ now running completely through your husband. Ludicrous. The idea isn't that you submit to your husband like you submit to the Lord, but you submit to your husband because you submit to the Lord. It's because of your love for Christ has nothing to do with the worthiness of your husband, has nothing to do with with whether or not it's fitting. He might, in fact, be disobedient to the Word of God. But your chief motivating factor is your love for Christ. Look with me for a second at Titus chapter 2. Paul states this in another way in Titus chapter 2. Verse 4 sort of gives us the context. He's talking about older women teaching younger women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled, that it may not be blasphemed is the word. That the Word of God wouldn't be maligned by others. Well, how does that happen? When people see the Word of God clearly teaching a principle like submission to your husband, and yet they see Christian women disregarding it, they begin to think that the Word of God is something that can be dealt with in that way, that they can simply disregard those issues, those passages, that contradict their personal views. Paul says that shouldn't happen. 
Your motivation for doing this, your motivation for submitting to your husband isn't your personal situation. It isn't your personal views. It isn't your, even your husband itself. Your motivation for doing all this is the Word of God. You're doing it as to the Lord. You're doing it in His name. You're doing it to His honor. And you're submitting to His design in marriage and trusting Him in it. This is very similar to what Paul eventually will tell slaves in Colossians chapter 3 when he says that they need to submit to their masters as for the Lord rather than for men. It's a spiritual matter. It begins as you're filled by the Spirit and it is a result of you offering your heart, your life, and your worship to the Lord by the Spirit. That's why we often say that submission really begins on the inside. It's a transformation of your attitudes before it's a transformation of your actions. It's spiritual. And because it's spiritual, it really begins with attitudes. A a demeanor of your inner being before it has anything to do with your outer being. This is a way, by the way, that you see Christ submitting to God. Remember, we talked about how this submission is simply a reflection of the relationship between Christ and God. That Christ Himself, although equal with God, constantly submitted Himself to the Lord's will, to God the Father's will. And not only that, it was His delight to do so. That's what He says, John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. He served God, in other words, with gladness. He served Him with delight. His submission to the Father wasn't somehow uh, uh, some resignation, some servile submission. And if this submission that takes place in wives is godly submission, if it's Holy Spirit-led submission, it will yield that same kind of attitude. It will arise out of that same kind of attitude. In fact, there, back there in Ephesians chapter 5, whenever Paul gets down to the end of the chapter, down in verse 33, summarizing everything that he said, he says that husbands ought to love their wives as they love themselves. And he says, let a wife see that she respects her husband. In other words, this submission begins with respect. It begins with an attitude. It's an attitude, it's a delight out of a heart for the Lord. That brings up a fifth qualifier that we can identify out of Paul's statements here. Not only is submission uh, uh, an attitude that flows out of them, it's spiritual, but submission is also complementary. It's complementary for wives. Really, God designed every relationship of authority and submission to be complementary. It was supposed to be a blessing Every authority the Lord has established wasn't designed simply to serve the needs of those who are in authority. It was designed to protect, to shelter those who are under it. That's how the Bible describes governmental authorities. 1 Peter 2 says that they were established for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. That, that authority is established for your praise. Assuming you're following what is good. Romans 13 says that the government is God's servant for your good. That's why he established such authority. 
God has similarly designed authority within marriage not to serve the needs of simply a husband, but to be a blessing to those who are under it, whether it's wives, whether it's children, husbands and fathers are to be providing for them, nurturing them, honoring them, earnestly caring for them, dwelling with them in an understanding way. First Peter three, seven. In fact, if you skip down in Ephesians five, down to verse 28, you see this this exact same thing. Paul says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. So he's saying, look, this, this, this role of authority and submission is mutually beneficial. There's a complementary aspect to it. This is simply an extension of the fact that God has designed marriage to be a relationship of one flesh. So that if you do something to the detriment of your spouse, you are doing something detrimental to yourself. If you do something for the benefit of your spouse, you're doing it for the benefit of yourself. You can't attack, you can't damage your spouse without doing damage to yourself because you're one flesh with them. Paul's point here in verse 28 is when a man loves his wife, when he strengthens her, when he encourages her, when he provides for her, when he supplies her needs, he is propounding all that benefit to himself. He's loving himself, he says. Strengthening himself when he strengthens her. Nourishing himself when he nourishes her. It's what so many people fail to grasp, that there's no greater path to blessing in your marriage than to blessing your partner. Blessing your spouse. That's why Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. You need to realize that as a wife, you can tear down not just your spouse, but you can tear down your whole house as you tear him down. For you to refuse to take the place that God has has designed for you, for you to refuse to take the role God's designed for you, for you to tear down the one that God's placed over you is for you to bring detriment to yourself. God has designed marriage to be complementary as we walk in the roles that the Lord has given to us. Now we come back and we compare all this to verse 23 and what Paul says there. He says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his, himself its Savior. Again, he's not saying your husband is your eternal savior, your spiritual savior. This isn't Mormonism where you have to somehow, uh, you know, get the blessing of your husband on resurrection day in order to be resurrected. That last phrase, he himself is its savior, that's a reference to Christ being a savior of the church, the body. But Paul's making a parallel here from that spiritual realm into the natural realm. And just as Christ is the Savior, the protector, the provider, the shield for the church. In like manner, the husband takes these kinds of responsibilities for his wife. Same principle. Same principle Paul will expand on down in verse 28. By the way, this is the way you see head used in other places in Ephesians. It's used to speak of authority 
Clearly, back in chapter 1, verse 22, when it says that Christ is made head over all things to the church, he's talking about his authority over all the powers and all the authorities in the universe. But when you come to chapter 4, in verse 15, it says, We as a church ought to be speaking the truth in love, so that we're growing in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Listen to this. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, headship involves not only authority, but headship involves nourishment and it involves provision. So that it's providing everything that's necessary for that complementary aspect, that mutually beneficial aspect, providing everything that's necessary for nourishment, everything that's necessary for growth, giving all the catalyst, all the resources, so that your wife is constantly being nourished and grown in her walk with Christ and in her personal life. This is the ultimate manifestation of this one flesh relationship, the ultimate benefit. And in that relationship, the wife has to see her role as key. That as her husband pours out and offers all of this benefit, all this protection, sheltering, nourishment, encouragement and growth. She comes alongside and becomes a fruitful blessing in his life. That's what Psalm 128 says. She's a fruitful vine for her husband. She's a fruitful vine. Let me show you this in another passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's also speaking about authority and submission. Verse 3, he makes it very explicit that the head of every wife is her husband. But I want you to take note in 1 Corinthians eleven eight, He says it this way, For the man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for Man. She was created for man. She was created because of man. The word is dia, for the sake of. In other words, man constituted the reason for the creation of woman. That's what it says. It's really just a just a uh, another way of saying what what Genesis two eighteen says when it says that God God says that He will make a woman as a helper suitable to her husband. She's to be man's partner. She's to be his assistant. She's to work with him towards the same goals to which the Lord has called him. Striving in every way to make their home, their marriage successful in that endeavor. This is what the Lord did in creation. He called woman alongside of man to be a helper. He decreed a mandate for them that they subdue the earth. He gave that mandate to them mutually to be carried out in their respective roles. Ray Ortland Jr. says, God calls the man with the counsel and help of the woman to see that the male-female partnership serves the purposes of God, not the sinful urges of either member of that partnership. So here the Lord 
brings alongside a wife in these complementary role and she refines, she extends, she strengthens, she adds insight into the relationship with her husband. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She's the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31.23 says this of the role of an excellent wife. That eventually her husband is known in the gates. Because of her. Sitting in the gates among the elders. Respected in every way. Because of what she is bringing. To enrich and strengthen and make him wiser and stronger. Richer in his efforts. Wayne Max says submission means that the wife puts all her talents, abilities, resources, energy at her husband's disposal. Submission means that the wife yields and uses all of her abilities under the management of her husband for the good of her husband and family. She's not her husband's opponent fighting at cross purposes or trying to outdo him. She's not merely an individual going her separate way. She is her husband's teammate striving for the same goals. She's created as her helper, as the helper to her husband. Created to come alongside of him, working in the purposes the Lord's called him to. It's where the Lord's placed you. It's what the Lord's called you to. Understanding the Lord has put you there, using your gifts, your creativity, your intelligence, your wisdom, your experience, using it all as the Lord has called you brings benefit to yourself. That's the complementary aspect. You actually bring yourself greater freedom. You bring yourself greater purpose, greater usefulness, greater fruitfulness in all of these things. As Proverbs 31 says, a noble wife then does her husband good and not evil all his days. This is one flesh. One flesh as the Lord has designed it this is what paul's outlining back in ephesians 5 23 he wants the wife to understand that the lord has placed your husband over you as a head to be there as a provider a protector a guardian and a shield and for you to place yourself under his leadership to make yourself his helper is one of the surest pathways to blessing that you could ever find by the way this is one of the Keys for courtship. For you as a young woman to find a man whom you can rejoice to promote. Whom you can give your whole heart and life to for the rest of your days. To see him excel, to see him grow, to see him constantly nourished, to see him in every way advance. And you alongside of him as your helper. That's the key in courtship is finding a man that you can do that with. Or if you're already married, that's your task now to promote the man the Lord has given to you. This is God's design. You live according to it, you find blessing. You don't find confinement, you don't find restraint, you don't find any sort of lack of freedom. What you actually find is that your role is elevated. That your duty before the Lord is exalted. And by the way, 
you'll find that this is one of the surest paths to beauty that there is. You can set aside your cream. You know, let your spa membership go. Your, your you know, whatever kind of bubble bath. This is what the scripture gives as the ancient secret of wisdom, of beauty. 1 Peter 3, 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. You want to know what will make you more beautiful in your husband's eyes than anything that you'll ever dress yourself in by anything else that you'll ever do. You want to know what will make you more beautiful in your husband's eyes? By doing this. It is the key ancient beauty secret. The very thing that God has designed you to do, the very thing that your husband longs for. One more point, one more qualifier that we need to make from Paul's statement. Not only is submission spiritual, not only is it complementary, but we can say also it's comprehensive. Verse 24, Paul's final statement, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. No area left out. This isn't a la carte. It's not selective. Choose what you like. Choose what you don't like. Submission is to be in all things at all times. It's to be a lifestyle. It's to be a lifestyle. Whether it's scheduling, whether it's finances, whether it's budgeting, whether it's parenting, whether it's discipline of your children, whether it's the menu, whatever it might be, wardrobe, no category of life is left out. No category of life are you given a prerogative to violate this principle. Instead, in every category of life, you are to show this respect. In every category of life, you are to submit. In every category of life, you are to trust the Lord. In every category of life, you are to come alongside as a helper suitable to your husband. Well, this is the life of those who are filled by the Spirit. This is the characteristic of the godly woman. This is the, this is the mark of the spiritually mature woman. The inevitable byproduct of the Spirit's work in your life and a true expression of worship. Knowing that, we also add that it's accomplished by His power. It's done by the Spirit's power as you walk in the Spirit. He works this in your heart and life for His glory and for your blessing. Let's stand together as we are dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, with, uh, this morning, according to Your Spirit and by Your Word, we give You thanks that these principles haven't been hidden away, that we're not left to simply meander through life, mimicking the, the broken systems of the world, following after the vain attempts, the mindset that teaches that fulfillment is found in expressing our own will. Lord, we know, because Your Word has taught us, greatest fulfillment is found in serving being a blessing to others. 
Lord, in that then, I pray that you would fill each of us continually by your Spirit, that we would be walking in the Spirit, singing, giving thanks, submitting. And we pray especially for our wives, that they would joyously see the role that you've given to them along with Christ. The role of submitting. The role of showing the beauty of your design. The role of finding blessing for themselves. The role of glorifying you and worshiping you in obedience to this command. Lord, may you so move, may you so fill the hearts and minds of our ladies. To their great benefit and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.